Welcome to another episode of the Unveiling Grace podcast. As always, my name is Lynn Wilder. And I'm Michael Wilder. And we have, again, a special guest. This is, uh, I think, number three, uh, where we're going to get into more detail on the filmmaking. Um, Richard Dutcher, um, my movie hero, okay? And uh, so we just got done talking about how he was getting into independent movie making. Uh, So he he did this first movie about... uh, uh, murders in an apartment building, I think. No, 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 that's another one. Uh, a comedy in an apartment building, okay? And so then he realized maybe he needed to get into a specialized area of movies for Latter-day Saints or Mormons. So he got the funds together and he came up with a great movie called God's Army. Very, very good movie, okay? Then he did a second movie on um, uh, Brigham City, uh, it was about an LDS community involving a murder in this one, if I recall. Uh, so um, it, it was murders, murders in the church. Is that what the name of the? No. Uh, so it was, it was. It was a very good movie, a good mystery. I, I loved it also. Then he comes back to God's Army too, but then actually the name changed later on. God's Army States of Grace, if I recall. Okay. And I think, Richard, was there something, this movie was a little bit different from the other ones in that it was, to me, uh, a bringing into a new concept that's not really known a whole lot in the LDS Church, the concept of grace. And I started seeing this come through on the movie. So, so tell us how you started, how you were thinking, what direction you were going was God touching you in the development of this movie? Because it's a little bit different than God's Army 1 uh, as we moved into God's Army 2. Right. Well, yes, it was uh, with Brigham City. I was so excited. As soon as I had shown with God's Army that this would work, um, because the audience is, you know, it was something so new. No, Nobody had done, you know, a commercial film like a, a um, basically a Hollywood or at least an independent Hollywood style film about Mormons um, that was authentic and real. And, uh, and it was hugely successful, it played across the, the nation in movie theaters in Canada and Mexico. And uh, I got the financing quickly for Brigham City. And in that, you can, I, I instantly went deeper because I, uh, I had zero intention of making, you know, superficial films i wanted to really dive deep and and to an examination of faith and and if you if you're watching brigham city yes it's a murder mystery but um that was just the the surface of it it was really a a spiritual drama and it was about you know these 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 themes of uh of evil and innocence and and trying to you know live with faith in a, in a fallen world. And, uh, the tagline, which I came up for the film, which I loved was, uh, nothing attracts a serpent like paradise and, uh, paradise being this little town. And then the serpent, of course, being the evil that comes to it through the serial killer, uh, who comes to town. And, uh, but then at the core of it was, uh, well, in the first film in God's army, I caught so much grief from certain 
Mormons because I showed not only um, some of the ordinance of the church, but I showed the priesthood blessing of healing that um, that we referred to in the in the first episode of this. But you know, with the anointing of oil, the laying on of hands, the the actual prayer, invoking the Melchizedek priesthood, all of that was on film. And some people thought that that was you know. So I doubled down after God's army and in Brigham City. Um, I went into showing the using all the words of the baptismal prayer, all the words of the sacrament prayer. And uh, some people had a real issue with that, but I was just doubling down. You know, it's like I, it's kind of my personality when people when God's army, when they gave me grief over, you know, the the blessing of the sick. I thought, OK, wait till you see the next one. Um, and uh, but at the core of Brigham City was this was the uh, the sacrament, which is the Lord's Supper which is in Mormonism, it's not bread and, and wine, it's bread and water, and uh, the prayers that that, and, and then basically it was a, it was a study of, from, from my understanding, what the meaning of the atonement, the sacrifice of Christ was, you know, and, and so that was really at the core of it. And then after that, um, after that was happened, I was so deep into uh, studying Mormon doctrine. I'd always been a, a student of Mormon doctrine, not just the surface level stuff, but I had, you know, the the Journal of Discourses, which was a multi-volume thing about the, the from the speeches of Brigham Young and, you know, the after Joseph Smith, the, the earliest um, prophets and apostles of Mormonism, uh, their speeches, you know, unredacted. And uh, I was deep into all of that. And then after Brigham City, which was also um, especially critically successful, I mean, people from, you know, Larry King and New York Times and LA, everybody, you know, the, the reviews and everything were so positive and the momentum was so good. And at that time, right immediately after that release of that film, it suddenly clicked in me because I'd always, since that experience I had in Carthage jail as a 14 year old, I always wanted to tell the Joseph Smith story on film. Um, and so all those years in between, whenever there was a new book about Joseph Smith or whatever, I would, you know, get it, read it, always trying to learn more about the time period and, and everything. And then, but I didn't know it's such a huge story that I didn't know how to tell it in a film, you know, in, in a two hour block, but after Brigham City, suddenly it clicked for me, and I went, oh, that's how you do it. And so then I really, you know, dove into it, and I uh, got, you know, a, a big investor in Utah, Larry Miller, who owned the Jazz, and um, one of the richest guys there, and he was he was going to back it uh, partially, and uh, we did a big press conference, and, and I started off down that road, and but in the writing of it, of course, I was especially deep in Mormon history, more than I'd ever been before, and uh, confronting all of that stuff because I wanted the film to be something that non-Mormons would appreciate as well. And I knew that people would come back, you know, and challenge me on everything, not just non-Mormons, but Mormons. You know, if I didn't portray things, if I didn't have historical... Um, Details accurate, huh? Verification, yeah, to be able yeah. to say, you know, here's this letter, here's this, you know everything, you know, here's, I just wanted to back up everything. So I was being as, as accurate historically as I could be. And, uh, 
but I was deep into that. And eventually I got to the point where I had Val Kilmer to play Joseph Smith. I had F. Murray Abraham to play Governor Ford, who was a big character. And uh, I was, and I figured out how to tell this whole story. That film didn't happen. And, you know, maybe at another time we can, we can do a podcast about that film because it's uh, that process. But, but while I was making that process or, or that, all these other people were make had jumped into the Mormon film market. They were making their version of what they thought Mormon film should be. And, uh, but I was so distracted with trying to get the Joseph Smith film made that I was kind of out of it for a few years and spending more time studying than I'd ever done before. And then an interesting thing happened to me <laughs> where I was, I was as Mormon as you could be at this time. You know, you know my background now, but at this time I was, We'd moved to Utah after I'd finished God's Army. So we were living in Mapleton, Utah, which is 95% Mormon, 98% Mormon. Um, my career now, I was well known as a Mormon filmmaker. They were calling me the father of Mormon cinema. And uh, my entire life was around this. We'd had more children, um, very active in the in the community, of course. And one day I was praying um, as I did often, you know, daily, multiple times daily. So it wasn't anything new, but for some reason I was just in a particular space, um, very calm, was kneeling and praying. And I got up from prayer and I said, it was in my bedroom and I, I sat down on my bed, my back against the wall and was continuing to meditate on what I had prayed about. And, um, and some of the things that I was praying about was I had learned so many things. I knew that Mormonism was true. I was passionate about it. And yet there were so many things that I had learned that were doctrinal that didn't really feel right. But of course, they had to be right. I just didn't understand them because Mormonism was true. And there were so many things in the history that just weren't right. But of course, they had to be right in some way because Mormonism was true. Um, so I was sitting against with my back against the wall, and for the first time since I was 14 years old, in a very calm state of mind, probably incredibly peaceful setting and I just and a state of mind, and I just asked myself for the first time in years, well, what if it's all just not true? Mm. And the Lord spoke to me in, in the most powerfully as he has ever spoken to me. Um, and, and you hear, you know, in scripture, you hear the, you know, or, and people talking about hearing the voice of God and how it's like, you know, the louder than anything that and it was piercing. And it was just, and I, and it was coming from the deepest part of me. I was expecting as a Mormon, I was kind of expecting, you know, if, if I was ever to get a message from God, it would be an angel coming, or it would be, you know, something from the outside coming in. But this was, it was from the deepest, truest part of me. And the voice was so loud and so clear. And the Lord just said, well, of course it isn't true. And it just shook me. Um, and I went from being so totally calm and peaceful to this was the most terrifying moment of my life. <laughs> it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't like, you know, you didn't have violins playing in the background. And uh, it was just a sudden understanding that everything I believed wasn't true. And uh, 
and I knew it. It was undeniable. You know, there's no way that I could look look and and, and explain it away. There was not, you know, no way I can ever deny that that was the voice of God. Um, and so the way I kind of describe it is 30 seconds before I I knew who God was. I knew who what what it was all about. I knew what my relationship to Him was. I knew what my job on earth was, and I knew I knew everything. And then 30 seconds later. All I knew was that God was real and everything else that I believed was false. And, uh, and it was really, it was terrifying. And, and I actually remember that feeling of being, of feeling, it was almost a physical, I mean, obviously I couldn't see this, but it was, you know, those movies where you're in space and two spaceships disengage and one just starts to drift away and it'll just continue to drift away forever. And that's what I felt like I was sitting in bed and I felt like I could, I could basically see my faith, at least my faith in Mormonism leaving and knowing that it was only, it was forever and eternally going to get farther and farther away. And that, uh, I think you understand that a lot of Christians don't really understand because, you know, to them, sometimes you leave a church, it's just, okay, I'm, the pastor's not, teaching the way I feel like he should be, te- I'll, I'll go find another church. But for a Mormon and for the father of Mormon cinema, whose entire life is wrapped up in this, his career, his livelihood and everything he's hoped and believed. And it's suddenly just gone. It was a terrifying moment. So I didn't know how to process that, what to do with it. And so I just, it was like a daily one step in front of the other. I I didn't even talk to my wife about it. I just kept going because it's like, I had a company, I had employees, I had, um, I had, you know, projects I wanted to do. And, uh, and I'd written a script for God's army too. Um, from the very beginning, as soon as God's before God's army even opened, when we moved to Utah, there was, as I was driving in the U-Haul coming from Burbank to Mapleton, Utah, um, in my mind, I was just toying around and I said, well, if I'm going to do a sequel to God's army, what would it be? And thinking I would never do it because generally I I didn't feel like God's army needed a sequel, but I just thought, I love these characters and eh, what what might I do? And it hit me, the storyline. And when I got home, it was a storyline about, you know, a missionary who had been previously been a gang member. And then another story about a missionary who during his mission commits the, the greatest sin next to murder that, that, you know, a missionary or a Mormon can commit. And, uh, and, I was so excited about it. I sat down with my wife on the stairs and I said, okay, hey, you know, I've got this idea. What do you think? And uh, she liked it, but she's like, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> she goes, that's not, uh, I don't think the audience is ready for that. They hadn't even seen God's army yet. So, you know, it was like, yeah. and so too I was authentic, like, too real, too sin ridden, right? Too wretched. Yeah. And yet yeah. the Wilders so, loved it. Yeah, but it, so instead, after God's Army, I just thought I'd make a movie about a serial killer, <laughs> which uh, was better in a way, um, <laughs> an easier transition. But um, so after when I realized that I was leaving Mormonism, and I and I did talk to my wife about it, didn't go well, um, and I realized I had to do something. I, I wasn't going to be public about the 
you know, my, my experience yet because I wasn't ready. I didn't know how to handle the transition, whatever the transition was going to be. Um, but I knew that I was leaving Mormonism. And, and so I thought, well, I'm going to have maybe one more shot to say something to the Mormon audience. What's it going to be? And I went back to that idea of God's army too. And I took the script out that I had written and I thought, okay, with a little bit of work, this is what I want to be my, basically my farewell. I want to make the film. Mm -hmm. And then after it's done, maybe I'll be ready to, you know, publicly leave. Um, so those people who, a lot of people, when they saw States of Grace, uh, and I went back to Los Angeles to shoot it and uh, did it in conjunction with another film that I wanted to make at the same time called Falling, came back to Utah, released States of Grace. And a lot of people, um, the perceptive people picked up on the fact of, wow, something's going on with this guy. Because mm -hmm. uh, uh, one of the things was I knew I was leaving Mormonism, so there was no, you know, I didn't care if, you know, uh, whoever the prophet was at that time, Monson, or I can't remember who it was. I wasn't afraid, you know, to get a call excommunicating me, you know, over the phone. Or it was just like, you know what, I'm just going to, just be as honest and tell it the way I wanted. And a couple of things that were really important to me was one was confronting that in Mormonism, there had been that one apostle at one time had talked about his father when they were, when he was, when he was leaving on his, not the father, the apostle, when he was leaving to go on his mission back in the day, about to get on the train, his father had said, I'd rather have you come back um, in a coffin than come back dishonored. And I would heard that you know, all through my mission and afterwards. And it's just a haunting. And I always thought it was like the ugliest and it didn't, to me, it was like, that's wrong. That's just not, that's not right. And uh, to me, it just seemed like a complete spit in the face of the atonement and, and had nothing to do with love. And it always had bugged me. So it was like, you know what, I'm going to get this out of my system and, uh, and show what the real world consequences of that kind of thinking and teaching is and then the other thing was in Mormonism, my entire experience through Mormonism, I never liked how Mormons felt about the cross, the image of the cross. Um, it, it seems to have lessened, and I like to think that my movie had contributed to this, but, you know, before States of Grace, you know, the, the cross, it was almost, we were almost like, Mormons were almost like vampires, you know, seeing a cross where it's like, you know, yeah. and there was a darkness associated with the cross. And, and, uh, as a missionary, we taught against the cross as a symbol, you know, that, you know, that that's what Jesus, that was Satan's finest hour was when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Wow. That, you know, I've since learned how, you know, that was the ultimate triumph of God on the cross. But so I wanted to bring the cross into the movie in a beautiful way and try to, you know, give a little bit of of sacred meaning to the image of the cross to the Mormons. So that if you're watching States of Grace, you'll see that coming through and, and you'll see, you know, all of that happen. <laughs> and then after the film came out, it didn't do very well financially at all. Uh, critically, it was extremely successful, but financially it was a failure, um, pretty much a complete failure uh, financially. Still one of the movies I'm proudest of, but uh, but 
And there were different, but I think one of them was, you know, I don't think Mormons were ready for the story of what happens to that missionary and, you know, the, the message of, of grace that, that came through the film. I don't think they were, some were incredibly ready. Some people loved it and responded to it uh, powerfully as you did, you know, mm-hmm. but, but others didn't uh, because, you know, Mormon, if you understand in Mormonism, all their public portrayals, which before God's army had all come from, the church itself, the institutional church. And I had never received any money from them, no input whatsoever. I didn't ask it and I didn't, you know, receive it when given. I just, you know, these were my stories. And often people would ask me, why, what gives you the right to tell these stories without getting permission from the church? And I was like, these are my stories. This is what I lived, you know, and and you're going to tell me that I don't have the right to tell my own story, that I have to go ask some, some older man in a church office building what, what I can and cannot say about my own experience, forget it. I never bought into that. But um, so after that whole, after that film came out and then shortly thereafter, I realized that I uh, needed to publicly, and I'd gotten to the point where I was ready to uh, tell the world that I, that I was leaving Mormonism, that I didn't believe it anymore. Uh, And that was a huge deal because as soon as so, I did that, that was a, there's a big full page, you know, article in the Provo newspaper and, and the news spread pretty quickly and, uh, and things really didn't go well. All my investors, of course, Mormon investors, of course, at that point backed away. Um, and uh, things got pretty ugly for my family and uh, my marriage started to, you know, tank and it was just uh, uh, the cost uh, the cost was endurable when I was, when it was just me figuring it out. But as soon as I went public with it, um, yeah, things got bad. So, so you, you gave up donors. You eventually split with your wife. Not, not your choice. I understand you had seven children at this point and you're living in Provo, Provo at this point or Mapleton? I had, uh, um, I had a big Victorian house in Provo. Mm. My, my home in Mapleton was where, you know, the kids and my wife and I lived when things started to get, as things started to get more distant with my wife, I was like, living half the time in my office in, in my Victorian house in, in Provo. Um, eventually because of the collapse of everything, you know, lost the marriage and uh, lost the both houses and, and financially everything just went right down the toilet. And uh, it was what, like, what in the world do you think gave you the courage to walk that out and walk that out in the middle of Utah territory where you had been an idol to many Mormons, right? Yeah. Where did that fortitude come from? Well, to me, it's not a, it was never, I mean, I've had people before, um, both sides. Some people, as soon as the news came out, were saying, oh, you're taking the easy way out and, you know, you just want to go sin or whatever. And it's, that's a mind-blowingly, you know, wrong take on it is the most difficult thing I've ever experienced in my life, psychologically in every way. But, um, uh, but then other people, um, 
you know, like you said, had a, had an inordinate, you know, respect for me, you know, more than, you know, just a brother, but you know, you get, you kind of become, I kind of became this like weird Mormon royalty kind of thing for a while. Yeah. Um, but leaving it, the interesting thing is the point is when people, some people afterwards said, oh, you're so courageous for leaving. Um, of course, those were not the Mormons saying that those were the people who had either left before me or were who understood the cost. But to me, it wasn't that at all because I, I didn't feel I had a choice. It wasn't even a choice to me. It wasn't even a decision. It wasn't a choice. As soon as God told me, and I can't stress enough how how clear it is, clear it was and is that that was God's voice to me. Um, there was, you don't, I, I couldn't stay. There, it wasn't even a choice. It wasn't a decision. It was like, okay, I'm leaving now. How do I leave? What, it wasn't ever a choice of should I leave? It's like, okay, I've got to leave this now. The only reason I was a Mormon was because I believed it was true. I believed it was real. Um, and then when I knew that it wasn't real, well, there's no question that I had to leave. And that was one of the things that uh, um, in my discussion with my with my wife, when I was finally able to talk with her about it, one of, that was one of the shocking things. And we had a, a an amazing marriage. It was, you know, almost 20 years of just the best marriage, you know, anybody could imagine. Just we hardly ever, I think in our entire marriage, we'd had maybe three or four arguments like raising your voice kind of arguments mm. um we just we're a great couple and and you know so the marriage was great she's an amazing woman uh, really kind just a wonderful woman so i don't want when i what i'm about to share i don't want it to sound as any kind of a criticism of her it's just the way different ways that people think because when I explained to her my experience and how I knew, and then I, you know, I went into a little more about some of the things that could help her understand some support for the fact that I didn't, not just God told me it wasn't real, but here's some stuff that, you know, we've never talked about, but this, you know, stuff going on with Joseph Smith and, and stuff doctrinally and blood atonement and, you know, the, and specifics of polygamy and just going into all kinds of stuff. But, and what she said to me though, when, you know, when I said I have to leave because it isn't true, and then she said, well, what does it matter if it isn't true? Oh, stop right okay. there. Yeah. That really shocked me. Um, yeah. And that is not an unusual reaction. Um, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to hear what you were are doing and have done in Richard Dutcher's life. It's a lot to give up, and yet you, Lord, are worth it. Um, look for part four with Richard Dutcher. Grace and peace to you. Until next time. And may God bless. <laughs>